The Avengers. That's what we call ourselves. Sort of like a team. Earth's mightiest heroes type thing. Avengers, time to work for a living. That's my secret. I'm always angry. I am on the side of life. You get hurt, hurt him back. You get killed, walk it off. I'm here to talk to you about the Avenger Initiative. I'm your host, Andrew, and I'm here to talk to you about the Avengers. Welcome to episode 67 of Some Assembly Required, your weekly adventure into the annals of Earth's mightiest heroes, the Avengers. This week, we are taking a look at Avengers number 62, The Monarch and the Man-Ape. This week's issue is written by Roy Thomas, pencils by John Buscema, inks by George Klein, letters by Art Simic, and it comes to us in March of 1969. Taking a look at our cover, this is a really awesome cover. I think my only complaint would be that I would have liked to see a little bit more detail on the magma, molten metal, whatever it is, beneath Black Panther. But it's a really great cover. I love the look of Man-Ape. The detail in the gorilla fur that he's wearing. I love the positioning of Black Panther how he's kind of holding on, and you really get the sense that Black Panther's in peril, which is going to be a continuing theme throughout this issue. Also, I like the faces of the Avengers kind of in the wisps of smoke. It's kind of funny, though, because in that shade of blue that the other Avengers' faces are drawn in, it took me a minute to figure out who the third Avenger is, right? We have Hawkeye, we have Vision, those two are pretty obvious. And then there's a third one, and I had to think back to last issue and who else was with the Avengers because this is kind of a carryover from last issue and it is Black Knight but in this case Black Knight with the fin on his helmet and everything looks a lot like a Kree soldier. The other important thing worth noting here is that this is the first time the cover of the issue adds the adjective mighty to the title. The Avengers are frequently referred to as the Mighty Avengers. Now unlike Uncanny X-Men this never actually becomes the official name of this book, but it is a frequently used adjective to describe the Avengers, and eventually in the 2000s we will get a Mighty Avengers title. It's just going to be several decades from where we're at right now. Again, as I mentioned at the end of last issue, this issue is not a continuation of the story, but it really picks up where we left the Avengers last issue. And the first couple of pages of this story really helped to kind of close out of last issue, which I felt had a little bit of a rushed ending. So in this case, we find the Avengers on a snow-covered peak in Antarctica after having just defeated Sartor and Ymir. And Black Panther and Hawkeye have made themselves a fire out of Hawkeye's arrows in order to try and keep warm. And I really love the coloring on this opening splash page. Specifically, the orange and reds around Hawkeye and Black Panther and the fire. I think it's a very well-executed effect, and I love the look. My only complaint here is that the Avengers are trying to light this fire on a windswept peak, and, you know, why wouldn't they go look for shelter? Now, in this case, the answer is that Black Panther has sent for his aircraft, has summoned his personal aircraft, and the Avengers 
join Black Panther on a trip to his home country of Wakanda. And this is going to be the first time we see a more significant group of Avengers going to Wakanda. Specifically, last issue we only had Black Panther and Vision go to Wakanda. Now we have, at this point, the rest of the team joining them, minus Wasp and Goliath, who are off of their honeymoon still. This is also a nice bit of wrap-up because last issue, last time we saw Wakanda, it was in this kind of snowy, icy chaos following the arrival of Ymir. So it's definitely a nice follow-up to figure out what happened to Wakanda after the ice demon has left. Now, of course, Black Panther takes the controls because, you know, he wants Wakanda to stay secret. So he flies the aircraft with the rest of the Avengers and they get there what feels like really quickly. And unlike the film, which I think is a, a very cool effect where they kind of fly through the hologram. In this case, they land inside of a hangar that is disguised in the jungle. And we see this really big two thirds page splash of the interior of Wakanda. And the Avengers are just so blown away at all the technological advancement that is present in Wakanda. While this isn't a terrible looking panel, they are really trying hard here specifically John Basima to echo Jack Kirby's style. Remember, Jack Kirby has this really great, very detailed, technologically oriented style that you can see on display in books like Fantastic Four and Thor. Unfortunately, to me, it's pretty obvious that this is Basima aping Kirby's style, and he just isn't quite as good. I mean, it's Jack Kirby. Who is as good as Jack Kirby? The short answer is nobody. I would have much preferred to see Basima do his own take on what this should look like instead of trying to duplicate what he thinks Jack Kirby would want it to look like. So once the aircraft lands, the Avengers start making their way off and Black Panther kind of hangs back, presumably to, you know, finish shutting down the aircraft, something like that. But in the process, the troops that are guarding this landing platform attack the Avengers and they don't stop until they see Black Panther and they're given the order to halt. So I've got a couple issues with this particular sequence. First off, I get that we're trying to convey this as an African country and that a more traditional traditional African garb is often used in Wakanda in portraying this culture. Here though, in our first real sojourn into Wakanda in Avengers, where we get to see the people of Wakanda for more than a couple of panels, Basima instead chooses to go very hard, stereotypical native, where they're wearing kind of a loincloth and a little bit of like grass weave on their leg. It's not distinct, it doesn't provide any kind of cultural identity identity other than to tell you you're in Africa and I would have liked to have seen a little bit more something more interesting more unique now, obviously things have changed a lot between this issue and the Black Panther film but the Black Panther film gives us this vibrant really rich and interesting cultural identity and this gives us a very stereotypical very unflattering native warrior look secondly is that these troops guarding the landing platform don't stop until they hear and see black panther but we've already identified that black panther is in his personal aircraft as king of wakanda i would like to think that his troops should be able to recognize their king's aircraft now maybe he's using a, a fairly generic 
style of aircraft for Wakanda. I don't know. But if this is his personal aircraft, then his personal guards should at least be familiar with it. And so if there are people coming off of this that they don't recognize, maybe they're in a more heightened state, but let's not jump the gun too much here. Now, the way this is explained away is that they have been given orders by the individual who was ruling in Black Panther's stead, who is his regent. And that is a character that, again, if you are familiar with the Black Panther film, you will recognize the name M'Baku, who from the film is one of my favorite characters because he is just a little bit crazy, a little bit intense, but there's so much going on there. And so we see M'Baku sitting on the throne and ruling in Black Panther's stead. And it quickly becomes obvious that M'Baku doesn't want to give up this position. And he's kind of being egged on by this, I don't want to say shadowy figure, but by this aide, this adjutant named N'Gamo. And N'Gamo is kind of encouraging what appears to be some degree of discontent in M'Baku, but he's kind of pushed him over the edge to where he is now looking to usurp the throne. But for now, M'Baku's going to play it cool. He is going to do everything he's supposed to do and relinquish the authority back to its rightful king. And we see him doing such, right? He's greeting Black Panther, he's greeting T'Challa, and then they go to a feast. And of course, this is one of my favorite parts of the issue, because as I'm sure you guys have realized, I am a big fan of well-executed tropes. Because tropes can be fun. And, of course, the poisoning or the drugging of the heroes during a celebratory feast by someone whom they assume they consider to be a friend is a classic trope of any kind of adventure film. Really, any kind of adventure story, I should say. And this is no exception. So all of the Avengers are gathered around, they're eating, and suddenly they realize, after... M'Baku raises his glass in a toast that the drink has been drugged and that they all lose consciousness. So from this point, we really aren't going to see the rest of the Avengers much. This really becomes a very Black Panther-centric story, which in general I'm okay with because I think it's a very good story. And at this particular moment, Black Panther doesn't have his own solo title. So while that might be a more appropriate place for a story like this, unfortunately, it doesn't exist. So... It has to happen in Avengers because that's where he has his own book. Either that or one of Marvel's anthology titles. So as Black Panther begins to regain consciousness, it looks like he's kind of in and out of this very fever dream kind of state where he's seeing these images of a white gorilla. And he's hearing these phrases like, Awaken, doomed one. Look on the snarling vision of doom. So it's these very ominous images, these very ominous words and phrases he's hearing. And really... It's all trying to kind of overwhelm Black Panther's senses and fill him with fear for this inevitable confrontation. And we find M'Baku has changed from his totally epic headdress. I haven't mentioned it before, but I love this headdress because it is just so over the top. Like, of course he looks like he's acting like the king, like he's the regent. After looking the part for long enough, I'm sure he's now convinced himself that, of course, he's the ruler. You see this every day in the mirror, the way people treat you, the way you see yourself 
both metaphorically and physically. Yeah, I, I get it. Like, this is why Mbaku's going through with this. But at any rate, he has exchanged this headdress and these more regal garb for the skin of a white gorilla, which, according to Black Panther, is forbidden. That in their legends, it is the most savage and merciless of beasts. M'Baku points out that it was Black Panther who forbid this regalia and not himself and that he is now the man ape so where black panther has taken up the mantle of the the panther god bast in this case mbaku has taken up the mantle of the white gorilla and as we see there's a big panther statue out in front of what we kind of assume is the palace but then next to it is now a giant gorilla statue and i do have to point out here that i find it a little bit presumptuous and kind of ambiguous of M'Baku to already have this giant gorilla statue prepared. I get that you think you can beat Black Panther and that you're convinced that you're going to rule, but I feel like this is maybe a touch premature. You haven't actually won, and building this monument effectively to your victory before your victory is usually a bad way of going about doing things and kind of a sign that maybe your victory is not as assured as it's going to be like it's a bit of negative foreshadowing if you will after mbaku points out that this symbol of a new dawning day in wakanda he immediately attacks black panther and we realize that this is not gonna go well for black panther because man ape is incredibly strong we're talking like the strength of a gorilla dialed to 11 like this is way beyond anything black panther was expecting out of mbaku as we find out by eating the flesh of this white gorilla and assuming its mantle he has all of its power and strength and then some because uh, he is throwing around black panther like a ragdoll now thankfully for black panther he still has his skills and agility so while he's getting tossed around he's faring better than certainly you or i would do but faring better than a lot of other heroes would do because he has that acrobatic skill set now this is kind of similar to the fight at the waterfall that we saw in the film black panther where mbaku is basically challenging black panther for the right to lead and by ancient tribal law they're going to fight this out for the right to lead Wakanda. Now, of course, Ngamo tries to interfere, doesn't work out for him, and he gets chucked into a tree, and he's basically not a part of this fight. But in the process, Manape gets a little distracted, and Black Panther is able to get away and get inside of a temple or uh, the palace. It's a little unclear as to where you are, but Black Panther realizes that he doesn't have the sheer strength to fight his way out of the situation and that although his acrobatics will serve him well what he really needs here is a piece of master strategy because otherwise he's not going to win this fight and i really like the fact that black panther moves on so that he can attempt to take control of this fight like he realizes that something's got to change and he's got to do it quickly and he takes action black panther's a really decisive hero like that he's very much like captain america in that regard which i think is part of the reason that captain america recommended him for the team in the first place so once they get inside this building, Manape loses track of Black Panther. Black Panther surprises Manape and appears to knock him unconscious. Now, it is worth noting here that, as I mentioned before, this is where Manape mentions that he gets his strength having eaten the, the blood and flesh of the fabled white gorilla, as opposed to Black Panther who gains his strength from some herbs. And this is the first time in Avengers, at least, that we get a reference to the herbs at which 
Ravage give Black Panther his additional strength and agility, things like that. So Black Panther does have some degree of superpower. It's just kind of like chemically induced, if you will. And again, we see that in the film Black Panther, where the fruit provides him with this strength and then it has to be taken away for this to be a fair fight well in this case instead of having powers taken away they both have powers they both have strength and and whatnot unfortunately here black panther makes a mistake and that is that he assumes man ape is unconscious and it turns out he's not and man ape surprises black panther from behind so where black panther had the offensive and where he had the advantage he's now automatically back on the defensive because he made that mistake and And as the fight continues, that mistake just kind of further and further compounds to the point at which we find Black Panther on this kind of rotating shaft, if you will, some kind of drive shaft at the head of an atomic furnace with either molten lava or molten metal flowing beneath them. And once again, Baku jumps down and confronts him. Now, I've got t- I've got two problems here. First is, again, the lack of detail in the metal or, or the, the lava, whichever one it is. Here, it looks like a kind of sloppy honeycomb, and I think there could be a lot more really interesting, really cool detail they could put in there. Secondly, more from a plot standpoint is I think it's interesting that Umbaku lets himself get in a position where he can no longer maximize his brute strength, his power. In this case, he's on a fairly small beam and he isn't able to take the kind of the broad swings and strokes without risking falling over the edge himself. So it looks like Black Panther is going to have the upper hand. And in fact, Mbaku actually does fall over the edge because Black Panther is able to use his acrobatic abilities to the maximum extent. He sends Mbaku over the edge and then catches him like a good hero, only for Mbaku to rip out some electrical cable and basically whip it at Black Panther and knock him unconscious. So at this point, Mbaku has Black Panther unconscious above this molten sea of either lava or metal. So obviously, he does the most logical thing, which is to carry Black Panther out of this amazing death trap and strap him into an altar in front of his panther statue so that he can crush him beneath the panther statue for maximum irony. Villains of the Silver Age have this unbelievable ability to self-sabotage. And this is just a spectacular example of that ability. Now, I will say from a storytelling and from a kind of big picture standpoint, one of the things this does is it gives the reader a sense that although these characters are superheroes, they are just as fallible as the reader. That Black Panther did everything right and he still lost the fight, right? He didn't figure out this spectacular way to beat the enemy, beat the villain. He was, in fact, himself beaten. He lost. And as we'll see here, Manape isn't defeated by some plot of the heroes or by some miracle intervention he's defeated by basically dumb luck in that when he goes to push over the panther statue onto black panther instead of pushing forward onto black panther it crumbles where he starts to push and topples backwards and crushes him at this point the other avengers manage to break out of whatever prison they were being held in and they come to black panther's rescue and release him from the altar which he's chained to but going back to my my point from 
from a moment ago. You know, there's always a lot of talk that the difference between Marvel heroes and DC heroes is that DC heroes are gods trying to be men and Marvel characters are men trying to be gods. While the self-sabotage is constant across comics, especially in this era, be it Marvel, DC, doesn't matter. In the Marvel comics, it brings on this additional context of helping the readers identify with the characters, right? They are men. They are fallible. They make mistakes and they lose fights. And that sometimes the universe is just on their side. That's what makes them heroes. Because they are the good guys, sometimes things work out. Now, in more modern comics, obviously the idea is that sometimes when you're the hero, everything doesn't work out, right? That becomes a far more interesting concept to experiment with. And that really doesn't get touched on until later in the 70s, the 80s, certainly into the 90s and, and modern comics. But here in the Silver Age, when it's, you know, good must triumph over evil, in in the end here, good does triumph over evil, but not because of what the hero did, but basically because of a twist of fate. And, you know, sometimes in life, bad things happen, but in the end they work out. And that's something everyone can relate to. So here, like I said, Black Panther loses the fight, even with all of his powers and all of his abilities and skills, he doesn't carry the day but because umbaku is the villain because he is the bad guy you know the universe has it out for him karma if you will and he loses overall i think this is a really good issue there are a couple of minor problems kind of outside of the general context of the story obviously the the big one being the name of the primary villain umbaku is kind of not something necessarily that white kids in the 1960s are really gonna say and remember really well so they went with man ape well that's got some really unfortunate racist connotations. I know that's not what they were going for. They were really going for the whole man-ape, man-gorilla thing. But, you know, when, when there are a lot of stereotypes and a lot of racial slurs towards African-Americans that involve monkeys, apes, jungle, etc., the character becomes poorly named. The other thing, and I, I kind of failed to mention it at the time, but at the beginning of the fight between M'Baku and Black Panther, M'Baku actually calls out Black Panther for being basically a race traitor. That Black Panther has gone off and has joined the Avengers, so he's joined this group of white superheroes, and that he has betrayed his own people and that M'Baku is really fighting for the people of Wakanda and that he has their best interests in, in mind and in heart and that Black Panther, by leaving and going to New York and joining these heroes, has abandoned his people really for his own selfish gains. And while I can understand that argument, I really don't buy into it very much. Re repeatedly, we have seen Black Panther going out of his way Way to gain recognition for Wakanda and to do things that are beneficial for his country. He's gone and he's addressed the United Nations, things like that. So just because he has left Africa and gone off to join the Avengers to M'Baku, this makes him a race traitor. And I really think that's a, a kind of exaggeration. So again, I really do enjoy this issue, all of it. What I feel are minor problems notwithstanding it introduces a character whom i loved in the film and i really kind of do enjoy in in the comic here too i'm looking forward to you know seeing more of him theoretically here the issue leaves with the the implication that mbaku is dead but i think we all know that he'll be back and that's not really a thing in comics while there is some permanence of death certainly death is fairly malleable 
Remember, you can find us at AvengersAssembly.com. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And you can find this podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and YouTube. If you'd like to be a part of the conversation, send your questions and comments to Andrew at AvengersAssembly.com. Next week, we're going to be taking a look at Avengers number 63. And in this corner, Goliath. All right. Hey. All right. Good job, guys. Uh, let's just not come in tomorrow. Let's just take a day. Have you ever tried shawarma? There's a shawarma joint about two blocks from here. I don't know what it is, but I want to try it.